From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees have a four-day weekend coming for Christmas. President Trump signed an executive order giving employees December 24th off. Federal Times reports department heads will determine if some employees are exempt from the off day. Federal agencies should stop using the Orion product from SolarWinds, according to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Acting Director Brandon Wales calls the compromise of the product a, quote, unacceptable risk. FCW reports agencies using the products have a deadline at noon Monday to submit completion reports to CISA. An IT update for the Forever GI Bill is complete at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The agency says the fix improves how the Veterans Benefits Administration works with veterans and speeds up processing time. FedScoop reports the VA used $243 million in coronavirus relief money to complete the upgrades. The State Department and the National Institutes of Health are the latest agencies to triage the damage from a cyber breach that's been going on for months. Experts call those breaches uh, cases of nation-state cyber espionage. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired, is president of AppGate Federal Group and former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I know you're looking at this from the outside in and not from the inside out, but what's your takeaway from the reports that we're seeing about this cyber breach? You know, frankly, I believe, Francis, this is the tip of an iceberg, a really big supply chain uh, uh, attack iceberg as part of a, uh, a nation state campaign. Uh, so we all need to be paying attention to this. And, uh, you know, frankly, I don't think that solar winds, fire eye, uh, that they're, they're only the tip of the iceberg out there. The analogy that another security professional gave me over the weekend, Greg, was that this is the hole through which the, uh, the, the floodwaters come into the basement. This is not the actual floodwaters itself. Is that an apt analogy, do you think? The, the, and I'm referring to the fire eye solar winds element of this. Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it's an interesting uh, metaphor uh, of how we uh, try to look at this. But, you know, frankly, as we take a look at our, our strategy and where we are and where we're going, what the adversaries are demonstrating in terms of uh, capabilities, you know, uh, this should be a wake-up call that we need to rethink our strategy, we need to rethink cyber deterrence, and we need to do things that we know would help in this particular uh, instance, such as uh, accelerate uh, zero trust. We've had paralysis by analysis. It's time to really get moving on zero trust as a security strategy, not only across federal government, but frankly, in the private sector, defense industrial base, et cetera. What's your, what's your sense of what happens, maybe not in this specific instance, but uh, broadly, what happens at OMB? What happens in the individual agencies that have had a challenge, that have had a breach when something like this occurs, Greg? What's the chain of events? Well, frankly, Francis, we've got to assume that every department and agency has been breached uh, in, in this case. Uh, so, you know, going in and assuming breach, uh, we are protocols for uh, convening things like the Chief Information Security Council 
to do a damage assessment, a risk exposure assessment, and uh, activities like that. Uh, we don't have enough hunt teams in the U.S. CERT and Cyber Command and NSA combined to go through every department and agency. So the immediate action is to assume that you're breached and then work from there. Uh, but I would have that CISO Council uh, convening uh, on a crisis action team uh, basis uh, to make sure that we have a, a good site picture as far as what our risk exposure is, to do a damage assessment. And then for those high value assets that have already been identified uh, by the departments and agencies, I would be uh, assessing them as part of my first uh, hunt team uh, looks. That security professional that I referred to a few moments ago, Greg, told me that her greatest fear is that there will be some kind of widespread accountability, warranted or not, like we saw after the OPM breach in 2015. What's your sense of what accountability, if anything, looks like in the wake of this? Well, you know, from a, a you know, let's not punish the victims for being victims. Uh, you know, this requires some mature leadership, but it also requires us to take a, a, a very good look, as I mentioned earlier, into are we in fact on the right course? Uh, are our strategies, are our uh, protections that are currently in place sufficient to meet the current uh, environment that are out there? You know, as a military commander, uh, sure, you know, you take a look and you say, well, did the commander fail uh, when uh, the enemy had a successful attack? Or do you just uh, make the decision, you know, the enemy's pretty good and, uh, you know, you want to live to fight another day? We don't take our commanders out and shoot them every time the enemy attacks. What we do is, is we assess whether or not our strategies, our operations, our plans, our tactics, techniques, and procedures are effective, and that's what we need to be doing right now. So that last use of strategy, of the word strategy, was your third in our conversation so far, Greg. Where's our strategy lacking now? Do you think, and where should it change? How should it change? You know, frankly, I think as we take a look at our strategy, there's been a lot of positives uh, that we have in there. However, uh, we're still leveraging that perimeter defense model that the, you know, frankly, military strategists have been using for as long as history has been written. Um, zero trust is uh, gaining acceleration in both public and private sectors. Uh, from a strategy standpoint, I don't think we can wait any further. And particularly as we outsource more and more, as we go into more as a service uh, engagements uh, from a federal government standpoint, uh, zero trust is the only uh, strategic approach that is holding weight. And you know, as we take a look at where we wanna be, uh, we need to rethink, and um, for my money, if I were still in office, I'd be pushing hard to implement zero trust everywhere. Quit analyzing it, get out there and uh, implement it. Greg Tuhill, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you back. Thank you very much, Francis. Up next, time to stop talking about the acquisition workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the nuance reformers need to make changes really stick. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The new National Defense Authorization Act the Senate passed Friday doesn't include major acquisition reform for the first time in a number of years. My next guest says the first rule about the acquisition workforce is you don't talk about the acquisition workforce. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, thanks for coming on. Um, pardon me for taking the fight club analogy there, but you do recognize, don't you, the irony that saying we talk about the acquisition workforce too much means we're talking about the acquisition workforce right now, don't you? It is very ironic, Francis, but what I really want to emphasize is the way to change the discussion around the acquisition workforce. What we're trying to do now, some of the things we've been trying to do since as long as I've been involved in government acquisition, and that's talk about the acquisition workforce as if it were one monolithic entity, when the reality is it is 30, 40,000 acquisition professionals across all government agencies, many with very specific responsibilities that bear little, if any, resemblance to some of their colleagues in other agencies who are performing similar functions. And that's at the core of my call for having a more focused discussion on the acquisition workforce. Should part of that discussion be making the responsibilities and roles more uniform across agencies so that one could institute policies and procedures to uh, more readily change the work that that person needs to do if someone decides in this or some future administration that that work should change? For instance, we've already kind of seen that approach in terms of regulations. There is the federal acquisition regulation overall. Almost every agency has its own FAR supplement, which is a recognition that acquisition in one agency is going to be a little bit different from an acquisition in another agency. So, too, should the training and skill set be adaptable for people in specific agencies. What I'm basically saying here is, look, stop the madness. There is no one acquisition workforce in the federal government per se. We have to start treating people on a specialized basis to make sure they're getting the training and skills they need to do their job. We don't have to do it in a way where those people lose portability if they want to go from agency to agency. But what we do have to do is recognize that a phased approach where we start in one part of the acquisition workforce with new training and then get to the other groups is probably going to be more effective than trying to be everywhere at once. I, when you say stop the madness, I'm reminded of the stop the insanity lady from the 80s and 90s who is probably not involved in the government acquisition workforce. <laughs> you write, in order to have even a chance at, and you write, fill in your verb here, any of the acquisition workforce, efforts to do so must be focused. They must even be limited to one or two sectors at a time. Are there sectors among the all, all of the various ones, Larry, where you think that activity should be focused to begin? I do. I have a candidate in mind, Francis, and that's the services area, specifically the professional services area. The government writ large is a net buyer of services, most of them professional services. It's not well known outside of acquisition that even the Department of Defense is a net buyer of services, even over weapon systems. So if we want to find a way to meaningfully uh, update and train the acquisition workforce, we ought to start where most of the dollars are 
and that's in the area of professional services. Is there a model for this phased approach that people should look at to either use as a model to move forward or at least to take heart in the fact that a phased approach would work better than trying to do everything at once? Well, I think there are a couple of different models you could use. I don't hold myself up as an organizational expert. Certainly industry, when they're looking to reform their companies, they do it one step at a time. But there's precedence for this approach inside government, even inside the General Services Administration, Francis, where GSA recently uh, has nearly completed the successful consolidation of its multiple award schedules program. This is a program that's taken a number of years to consolidate, and they didn't do it all at once. They purposely set out and said to industry and to themselves and to their customers, it's going to be a three-step approach. And they've really done a nice job with each of the three steps, taking the next one only when they've largely wrapped up the first one. The result is a lot less grumbling than I would have expected to hear from industry and a schedules program that's probably on some pretty solid footing moving forward. We're almost out of time, Larry. What are the components of that that were successful that might apply to some type of, of work with the acquisition workforce? Well, what GSA basically did was they said, look, the first thing we're going to do is get a solid standard set of terms and conditions together. That goes back to the first question you asked, Francis, which is, you know, where do we start? Should we have a, a common set of standards? So that's what GSA did with the schedules consolidation. They came up with a set of standards. The second thing they did is they went out to implement those standards across individual contracts. Uh, so and they went out purposely section by section, contract by contract to update and integrate that, uh, those contracts with the new terms. Now phase three is combining multiple contracts into one, which is kind of very difficult to do. It requires a crosswalk. So the, the, but you have to start with the foundation and you also have to have an end game in mind before you start so that you know where you want to end up and you end up where you want to be, and that is with an acquisition workforce that actually across all sectors is trained. Larry Allen, thanks very much as always. Great to have you. Thanks, Francis. Up next, another general in line to become the top civilian at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the line between uniforms and civilians in the Defense Department. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Members of Congress in both parties are pushing back on President-elect Biden's choice to become the next Secretary of Defense. Critics say General Lloyd Austin, U.S. Army retired, shouldn't get the job because it should go to a civilian, not a retired officer. It's calling attention to a problem the National Defense Strategy Commission looked at. Roger Zakheim is director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. He's former general counsel and deputy staff director at the House Armed Services Committee. Roger, welcome back. What is the right balance in that civilian military 
divide might not even be the right word in uh, defense and national security policy. Well, when it comes to the selection of Secretary of Defense, the law speaks quite clearly on this, that um, Secretary of Defense needs to be someone who's been out of the military for at least seven years. In the absence of uh, being out of the military for that amount of time, Congress needs to act and provide a waiver. Of course, we did this for Secretary Mattis, and now President Biden is asking the Congress to do the same uh, for General Austin. What does that say, though, in your view, the, the response that we've gotten from Congress about the appetite for a waiver like that so soon after we did it for the first time in a very long time? Well, you have a number of concerns. First, I think people um, were concerned that we did it for Secretary Mattis. Uh, and uh, many people who even exercised the waiver through their vote in Congress felt that Secretary Mattis leaned too heavily on the military during his time uh, serving as secretary. In other words, the civilian side of the Pentagon uh, was de-emphasized uh, and the balance uh, was at a tilt. Uh, so you have that kind of legacy, and now we're expecting you know, to do the same with General Austin, uh, irrespective of uh, his own qualifications, obviously uh, a storied career in the military for nearly four decades. Uh, there's a lot to celebrate there. But in terms of civilian control of the military, uh, what the law requires to make sure that the principal advisor on military matters is a civilian. Really, it's it's something that is quite a departure from what we've had in the past. And you know, uh, President-elect Biden uh, offered his rationale for the pick, uh, much of it uh, understandable and 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 even laudatory in, in an article he wrote in the Atlantic. But uh, his rationale was, you know, we're in a crisis moment, and therefore we need to turn to an exceptional military leader. And I think uh, one of the things that make this republic great is that. We haven't had a turn to military leaders when we were in a crisis. And so for me, uh, that particular argument is not compelling. And that's the, the, the message that I took away from that Atlantic piece was there are pretty accomplished, pretty successful civilian leaders that could go into that job and do a good job uh, in a crisis situation. What's the message that you think that sends to civilians who might potentially want to go into not picking on uh, President-elect Biden, we saw the same thing at the beginning of the Trump administration. President Trump was very eager to talk about his generals. And it, it, it seems that we're headed down a, a path more broadly um, that potentially will send a message to civilians who want to lead at the highest levels of the department. Is that a fair read on my part? Well, I mean, I, there there is the impact on the bureaucracy, on the civilian le you know leadership uh, that will support the uh, uh, secretary, in this case, Secretary Austin, uh, Austin, if he's if he's indeed uh, confirmed. But I think that the broader issue is about you know what our constitution says on the matter, what the defining characteristic of the republic is. It's really exceptional where we've gone to someone who's a military person to lead the Department of Defense. As I mentioned before, it's only happened twice, and I think uh, the notion somehow that uh, we. There isn't a civilian who could step up to this particular crisis, this particular moment, really um, doesn't play out in terms of what's happened in the past. Uh, think about uh, the wars that this country has faced and had great civilian leadership uh, lead the Department of Defense. Listen, President-elect Biden deserves to have the person he wants as Secretary of Defense. Uh, that's all the rationale that's really required. Someone he trusts, someone he's confident, somebody he feels who will carry out his policies. I get all that. But the notion that the moment requires it, this crisis requires it, again, uh, is not compelling to me. 
the National Defense Strategy Commission, which you mentioned earlier, really addressed a broad issue of what the implications are for the Department of Defense. And, you know, the reality is people are a product of their experience. And that's why I think there are people who are concerned that uh, if General Austin is confirmed, he will look to the military to support him and the civilian side, that expertise will not be emphasized. That's a legitimate concern. It's a concern of the commission. And I think it's a concern of members of Congress who have expressed some uh, doubt right now. We just have a minute or so left, Roger. A veto threat from the president today for the National Defense Authorization Act. What do you make of that? Well, the president has consistently threatened to veto this bill. Uh, what's new is that now uh, he's saying the rationale for the veto is the bill was not adequately uh, uh, kind of addressing the threat posed by China. It was soft on China. Um, that really defies what's inside the bill. Uh, there's this specific deterrence initiative uh, over $2 billion of dollars dedicated to addressing uh, China uh, through enhancing deterrence in that theater. So uh, I think the president wants to veto the bill. He intends, he told us he's going to do so. We can expect it. Uh, we'll see how the Congress responds. There aren't many legislative days left for them to exercise a veto override should the president make good on his threat. Roger Zakheim, thanks very much as always. Welcome back. Great to have you back. Thank you so much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. Coming this Sunday morning, a television-exclusive conversation with the administrator of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, is here Sunday morning, December 20th at 10.30 on ABC7. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.